You are listening to The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogolana. I'm your host, Morris Sullivan. A lot of people are harder on themselves than they are on others, and self-judging, perfectionism, and things like that can cause a lot of unnecessary suffering. So today I'm going to share with you a talk that I gave about self-compassion. But first, I want to tell you one of the Jataka stories. So these are stories of the Buddha's previous lives, as you may remember. Well, there was a Sakyan, a member of the same clan as the Buddha, named Kokalika. He became a follower of the Buddha, but he was very jealous and argumentative, so that wasn't working out too well. At one time, he went to the monastery where Sariputta and Mogalana were staying, and he demanded that they return with him to his country. But they refused his demand, and Kokalika left in a huff. When other monks told the Buddha about this later, he told them about an incident from their previous lives. Many years earlier, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, lived as a tree sprite in the forest. There was another of these spirits living not too far away. A lion and tiger also lived there, and out of fear of the two great predators, people didn't enter the woods. However, the lion and tiger killed and ate other animals, and what they didn't eat, they left behind, and of course, over time, that didn't smell very good. Well, one day the other tree sprite came to the Bodhisattva and he said, This forest stinks because of these big cats and all this stench of decay. I'm going to drive them out. The Bodhisattva said, No, no, don't do that. The lion and the tiger protect our home. If men see they are gone, they'll start cutting down trees and begin tilling the land, and pretty soon our forest will be gone. But the other sprite paid no attention to him. He transformed himself into a giant monster and drove away the lion and tiger. Sure enough, when people started to realize that the dangerous animals had left, they started coming in and cutting down trees, clearing fields, tilling the soil. The foolish sprite came to the Bodhisattva and he said, You were right. We're losing our forest. What can we do now? The Bodhisattva told him where the lion and tiger had gone and said he should go fetch them back. But when the sprite went to them and asked them to return, the lion and tiger refused and just told him, go away. When the Buddha finished telling the story, he said, Kokalika was the foolish sprite, Sariputta was the lion, and Mogalana the tiger. Well, sometimes we want to reject others or even reject aspects of ourselves that are actually beneficial to us. We should be compassionate first and then see if we can resolve problems in a way that doesn't cause even greater harm. About 25 or 30 years ago, something like that, I was involved with this organization that helped people recover from alcohol and drug dependencies and things like that, um, but that had issues with the, the God-centered approach that a lot of the mainstream recovery groups at that time took. And so um, I was dealing with my own recovery by attending these meetings, and, and I was also sitting with a little Zen group that was meeting at the same church in Orlando. Uh, And if you ever spend much time around Zen practitioners, you'll eventually encounter this quote, probably, which is from Zen Master Dogen. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. 
to study the self is to forget the self. So when I first heard that, you know, it resonated with me, but I didn't know what it meant. Didn't, couldn't quite figure that out, but I knew it meant something important. Um, but this particularly, particular recovery group had been meeting for a few months. And on this one day, we had our first visit from a psychologist named Dr. Tate, who had agreed to serve as our mentor and advisor. So one of the members, this woman in her late 20s, was talking about her struggles with alcohol and drugs and eating disorders and things like that, and a whole list of kind of compulsive behaviors. And she was talking about her weekend and what she'd been doing, and, and it was clear that she was feeling pretty desperate. And she started crying. And Dr. Tate stopped her and he said, what are you feeling right now? And she said, I feel terrible. And he said, terrible how? She said, well, I feel really bad about myself. I think I do these things because I have low self-esteem. And Dr. Tate said, self-esteem, huh? Well, self-esteem is a sickness. Now, he didn't say low self-esteem was a sickness. He said self-esteem itself was a sickness. And on a really deep level that I couldn't explain, I caught a glimmer of what Dogen meant when he said that to study the self was to forget the self. So at the time, the idea that there was anything wrong with esteeming oneself kind of flew in the face of conventional wisdom. Uh, in the late 1960s, there was a paper published by a psychologist uh, about the psychology of self-esteem. And in this paper, he announced that feeling good about oneself was the secret to success in life. And this launched this mass movement through the 70s and stuff toward doing everything possible to make sure that people, kids especially, were free from any threat to their self-esteem. And so as a result, there were new games designed to protect kids from having to experience losses and things like that. But then it turns out over time that self-esteem didn't really quite live up to the hype. So 10 or 15 years ago, there was a nonprofit organization that dedicated to the advancement of science and psychology. And I love it when Buddhism aligns with science. Something really special about that. To know that science figures out something finally that Buddha that the Buddha talked about 2,500, 2,600 years ago. Makes me feel good. Anyway, um, they, they commissioned a researcher to review the studies that supported the idea that self-esteem was the be-all and end-all of mental wellness. And he and his team looked at 15,000 studies. And they determined that about 1% of them actually met rigorous standards for research. And when they looked at that small group, they concluded that good self-esteem didn't really predict high grades or career achievement or any of those kinds of things. It didn't reduce alcohol dependency. It didn't lower the incidence of violence. And in fact, researchers found that highly aggressive, violent people tend to think very highly of themselves. Which con contradicted the prevailing view that aggression was a compensation for feelings of low self-esteem. So, if self-esteem is not really very helpful, then what do we do when we'll f we feel badly 
toward ourselves or about ourselves when we mess up? How do we deal with things that seem tied to the idea of low self-esteem, like anxiety and depression? And why do we tell kids who've been taught to consider themselves wonderful no matter what they do or don't do? So and in fairness, this whole self-esteem movement idea came about from this realization that was actually a constructive realization that kids and adults don't respond very well to being beaten up over their performance. And that being highly self-critical and perfectionistic really doesn't make you do any better. So we're in a Buddhist temple. And as you might imagine, if you know anything about Buddhism, there is a middle path. So the Buddha said these things over 2,000 years ago that can help us with this. And uh, there's a lot of commonality between what psychologists have figured out and what the Buddha taught is actually helpful. So we talk a lot about compassion in here. We Several times during the service, we talk about may all beings be happy, which is goodwill and you know, the other side of that is we want other beings to be free from suffering. And that's a part of why we're here, is to practice and develop our minds so that we can help free all beings from suffering. Um, and it's important in, in a social sense, too. There's a lot of work these days with encouraging compassion in communities and that kind of thing. Somebody mentioned the Book of Joy. What's the seventh factor or the seventh foundation of joy? Compassion. <laughs> so yeah, the Book of Joy is great, by the way. I've been encouraging people to read it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a really neat collaboration with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And they talk frequently about the value of compassion. So mentally healthy people tend to be compassionate. And deliberately being kind and compassionate actually makes us experience more positive feelings, makes us more emotionally resistant. So, but what about being kind to ourselves? What about compassion for ourselves? When we say, may all beings be happy, aren't we beings too? Yes, we are. May all beings be free from suffering. Yes, including me. But a lot of people, when you start talking to them, find you find that people, many of them, don't show compassion for themselves very well. And how many of you experience that? You're pretty tough on yourself sometimes, right? So that's, this is a very common thing. So there's a psychologist named Kristen Neff who started studying this at the University of Texas and has become a leading proponent of what she calls self-compassion. So she actually got interested in this because she was practicing Buddhism. In the late 90s, she started uh, going to insight meditation retreats and that kind of thing. And she realized, uh, as part of her research as a student, graduate student, that people often make incredibly harsh, cruel self-judgments that they would rarely make about other people especially people that they cared about. And she found that some people are, are capable of being kind to themselves and that it is possible to treat yourself with the same kind, caring, support, and understanding that you show to others. And it turns out 
that people who are compassionate toward themselves tend to feel emotionally better and tend to be healthier and are more likely to exercise and see their doctors regularly and that kind of thing. And they tend to be kinder to other people, including their relationship partners, and to be more supportive of others in general and that sort of thing. So it seems a little counterintuitive, uh, maybe, to think that self-compassion and self-esteem are somehow different. But think about this. So narcissism is very closely associated with self-esteem. The narcissist has rated himself or herself highly, and so highly so that other people don't matter. But with self-compassion, there's no need to be the center of the universe. We identify more with others, so when we suffer or fail, we're able to recognize that others also suffer and fail. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses, and so we share those attributes with others. So instead of having to feel better than other people in order to feel good about ourselves, we really find a greater connectedness with other people as a result of having compassion for ourselves. So being compassionate toward yourself and having high self-esteem both make you feel good, but high self-esteem is a matter of giving yourself a good rating. I am good. So there's a downside to that. What if you do something bad? What if you mess up, make a big mistake? Suddenly, I am good. How do you, how do you fit that in, right? It becomes kind of logically, does it make sense? So I am good can often turn into I am bad. Or maybe we managed to overlook what we did, rationalize what we did, and so on that was bad, rather than accepting ourselves as human beings who came into this moment with the karma that we have and have to live from this point as the people that we, you know, that we walk into this point as and with all of the, all of the things that brought us to this, including the fact that we are mistake-making human beings. It's part of the package. So having compassion for yourself can be without judgment. You don't have to decide, am I good or bad? Simply recognize, I'm suffering and respond to myself with kindness. So think about it this way. If you were talking to a friend who had just failed at a big project or something, what would you tell them? And then what do you tell yourself when you fail? And how different are those? A lot of the time, if a friend messed up, we say, you know, it's okay. You're all right. You just made a mistake. But if we mess up, what do we say to ourselves? Yeah. What's the matter, you screwball? Whatever. So there's three main ways to develop compassion for yourself. First is be kind to yourself. Be understanding toward yourself. And be mindful. So being kind to yourself. We have this tendency to be self-judgmental. When we fail, we want to call ourselves a failure. I've heard people say really terrible things about themselves. So self-compassion means that you're warm and supportive to yourself. Again, think about how you might console a person who was a friend of yours who had made a mistake. You wouldn't say, yeah, boy, what an idiot you are. But we say that to ourselves, don't we? 
So you'd say something positive, so you can do the same thing for yourself. The next part is self-acceptance. So we all know this line from Alexander Pope, to err is human, to forgive is divine. But we fail often to forgive ourselves nearly as readily as we'll forgive people that we care about. So the next step in the process really is to understand yourself. We all experience a certain amount of stress and suffering as a result of our human tendencies to make mistakes. And so when we mess up, we think of ourselves sometimes as the only people in the world who ever make mistakes. But if we think realistically about that, we see that all human beings make mistakes. Some of them make really big ones, but we can work on accepting ourselves with our humanness and accepting that we're inherently worthy uh, with our self-image defined by our purpose. What do we want to, you know, what's the real value of my life? And that's a decision that we make. It's not something somebody puts on you. So your sense of self-worth can be stable and resilient. And you can fail without being a failure. You're also less likely to be negatively reactive. So since your sense of self-worth doesn't hinge on externals, you're less likely to take things personally when they don't go your way. And so you're less likely to get angry when you encounter obstacles and things like that. The third practice is related to mindfulness. Being aware of your suffering. Being aware of your suffering. A lot of times we hide it from ourselves. We don't really want to experience suffering. And I mean, I get it. I don't want to experience suffering either. But when we can, can accept that as part of being human is to experience difficulties and, and stresses and those kinds of things that makes it a lot easier to deal with being human. If you're too caught up in a problem and problem solving, you can deny or ignore your feelings and not offer yourself compassion. So practicing meditation tends to increase your self-compassion because it increases your awareness of what your mind is up to. That's a big part of what a lot of people don't understand about meditation. They think that meditation is about creating some calm state of mind. It's about understanding what your mind is doing and then doing things more skillful with it. So to have a meditation practice that emphasizes awareness and development of your mental states will increase your ability to skillfully react to your own emotional stress. So a lot of people probably listening to me talk about self-compassion, probably thinking, well, this is a little too soft, or well, how am I going to motivate myself to do something better, and that kind of thing. But to be self-critical or judgmental is counterproductive. You're more likely to learn from your mistakes if you're not judging yourself. You can still judge what you do. You can still evaluate how well you do what, you, what you're setting out to do without judging yourself. Criticizing yourself is strongly linked to depression and things like that. If you, you tend to lose confidence in your abilities, which makes it less likely that you'll improve. So one problem with trying to motivate yourself through criticism is that it makes it tough to be honest with yourself about your weaknesses. If you're gonna be harsh with yourself when you find a weakness, then you're likely to avoid facing your weaknesses. And so often people who, will do, who do that will look for ways to blame others for their failures. 
because it keeps you from recognizing your own fallibility. So I teach Tai Chi, and the first three months or so that somebody comes to learn Tai Chi, I have to constantly remind them that they've never done it before and everything is different than anything they've ever done before. And so their job is to come in and do things wrong for a long time until they figure it out. Because if you, and, and because you'll get people who get very frustrated. I'll say, put your foot here and they'll put their foot there and then they, you know. And so you gotta, you gotta accept that growth comes with mistakes. You won't do much of anything if you're not willing to fail. If you beat up on yourself every time you fail, you're less likely to take risks. So I was reading this, I read this book a while back uh, by a very productive engineer, and it was a book about creativity. And this guy had set himself a goal of having 10 new ideas every week. Not of having 10 good ideas every week, 10 new ideas every week. And then the next thing was what he called fast failure. He'd test his ideas and try to get them to fail as quickly as possible so he could get the bad ones out of the way and move on to the good ones. He figured the quicker he failed, the quicker he went to the next idea, and maybe that one wouldn't fail. And he became a very productive engineer, a very creative engineer as a process, a part of that process. Contrast that to the idea of being risk-averse. If you're willing to notice your, to notice your own faults and weaknesses, non-judgmentally, you'll be much more willing to change them. So having compassion for yourself and accepting yourself doesn't mean being blasé toward whatever happens. You'll still benefit from trying to live your life well, which means doing what you do with commitment and attention. But rather than focusing on feeling good about ourselves, we can focus on cultivating true happiness so you're probably aware of the Buddhist teaching that says that there's no self as such, which was part of what Dogen was talking about. In other words, there's nothing here that's inherently mine in any significant way. There's form, but form is made up of other things that come from elsewhere, and it's constantly changing. And the same is true of feelings, perceptions, consciousness, mental formations. None of those are mine in the sense that I have a lot of actual control over them. So those, since those things aren't really mine, and they're always changing in unpredictable ways, why in the world would I rate myself according to them? What is mine to rate? Well, actually there is something. To a large extent, I own what I do. So sure, rate your actions. What happens if I accept myself, warts and all, define what it is that I want to do, and then evaluate how well I achieve my purpose? So that purpose should be defined in a way that will lead to greater happiness. We tend to look for things that are externals that we think will you know, add to our happiness, but great, the greatest happiness comes from developing things like humor, humility, kindness, generosity. Those kinds of things are the things that will actually lead to true happiness. This is why we share the merit at the end of every practice here. The more you practice extending goodwill to others, 
the more that you find that the line between yourself and others dissolves. So be kind to yourself and you'll be kinder to others. Be kind to others and you'll be kinder to yourself. So I hope this was helpful to you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to episode 34 of The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogalana. I hope today's teaching was helpful to you. Before I go, I want to tell you about my other podcast. I recently launched a new one called Holding Up the Heavens. I'm still doing this one, of course, but the second podcast is more about spirituality in general than about Buddhism specifically. And it's also about another of my interests, music. It's in a music plus talk format, so to get the full effect, you need to listen to it on Spotify, and then you'll hear the songs in their entirety. So please, go to Spotify, search for Holding Up the Heavens. I think you'll like it. So be good to yourself. Remember to have compassion for all beings, including you. Now go save the world. (laughs) 